Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating life, liberty, and property. You are listening to Liberty Season 2. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast. And we are on episode three of the second season of 2018, where we are discussing the principle of liberty. And I don't know why you weren't the first guest because your entire life is based around this principle <laughs> from what it, from what I perceive from, uh, as an outsider. Uh, but my guest is no stranger to the show. It's Connor Boyack. He's the president of Libertas Institute, and he's the author of several books. And I can't wait to dive into uh, to this today. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, but before uh, before we get started, uh, make sure you go listen to uh, the first season. The first season was awesome, where we talked about life that you're your greatest asset, and the narrative and discussion revolved around that of how to improve yourself, how to be more valuable to other people, and uh, and so you know it's complete. It's all done. If you want to go binge, uh, listen to it, then I definitely encourage you to do that. Also visit the, the website, which is uh, brand new. It's thewellstandard.com. All right, Connor, let's get into it, man. I mean, this is this is a topic that that I know is this kind of internal passion of yours. Yeah. And it, and you have done so much as far as you know, uh, moving the liberty process mm-hmm. uh, into the lives of, uh, of of people. And I think the the stamp of like, you know, I would say a milestone of success is uh, is Ron Paul. I was I talking to him uh, several months ago. And I brought up your name and his like eyes like lit up. It was like, he was like, it was like, it was later at night and he was like, oh man, I need to go. It looked like he was wanting to go to bed, Uh wanted to call it early. And I brought up your name and it was like this, he was invigorated with like this, this another 45 minutes of discussion. Uh, So I think that right there says a tremendous amount about uh, what you are, what you're doing and what your organization's mission is and what you've accomplished. So let's just maybe start there with, you know, telling us about, you know, what, what you do and why you decided to do that. And then we'll We'll yeah. go from there. So we have, we have kind of a split focus, right? So here in Utah, where both of our uh, organizations are based, uh, we work on changing policy uh, or laws at the state and local level. And so we're a think tank, right? We're a policy institute. We sit around trying to dream up ways that we can get public support and, and support by elected officials to change the laws in favor of freedom. But the process that goes into that um, is not confined for our state. I always say that we change hearts, minds, and laws. And, uh, and that's something that applies, of course, everywhere, right? It's not confined to the boundaries of Utah. And so a lot of what we do, like with the books that you mentioned, is uh, far beyond Utah. And so we're trying to change hearts and minds. We're trying to educate people about the principles of liberty. And so that has a reach beyond our state. So we're really in the business of just educating people. And and a lot of it is reminding people of the things they already believe in. As we're going to get into today talking about liberty, oftentimes we don't have to persuade people to believe in the principle. We have to show them why the the why our application of that principle is the right one. So, hey, you already say you believe in limited government or you believe in free markets, but hey, look at you know this Tesla issue or look at Uber or whatever. We just have to get them to align their positions or their policies based on the principles that a lot of people already believe in. Uh, but it's really just an education process at the end of the day. But so, what have you what have you seen in regards to the difficulty? Because this is at least what I've seen the difficulty of people connecting the dots to what they personally believe. Cause I totally agree with you. Yeah. 
to the actual actual execution of that of that principle because you yeah. are you're talking about laws and you're talking about uh, legislature for this and legislature for that creating a law to curb this or creating a law to prevent that yeah people from what I've seen it's a difficult connection to okay here are the principles of liberty here are laws. How did you, I mean, what, what is your take on, what's your take on that? There's a great quote by Thomas Jefferson about this where he says that I would, uh, I'm going to butcher this now that I'm trying to shoot uh, from the hip, <laughs> but he says, I'd rather, um, he says the tempestuous sea of liberty, right? Like I'd rather be in the tempestuous sea of liberty rather than uh, confined in, um, oh, I'm going to have to go look it up. But he's basically saying like, look, if we want to be comfortable and taken care of and protected, uh, oh, the co- the chains of despotism, I think is what he's talking about. So we'd rather uh, live on the tempestuous sea of liberty than, than suffer the chains of despotism. Because a lot of people, a lot of people are very comfortable uh, controlling other people. So think of like in your neighborhood and, you know, no one wants a pink garage, right? Or no one wants that one neighbor to have weeds or their garbage bins that they don't take in two days a week. We, we want to control other people to conform with our standard. And mm-hmm. so on the one side, we have this we have this duality. On the one side, we have this desire to control others to conform to a standard we want. But then on the other side, we don't want others to control us. For If there's that one issue like, hey, I just want to install a shed in my backyard, right? And if your neighbor's want to wield power over you and say, well, no, we're not going to allow you to do that through our city ordinances. You know, you're not allowed to do that. You then run into an issue where uh, you don't want other people controlling you. So honestly, a lot of, to get at your specific question, how you combat that duality, how you get people to be more willing to navigate those tempestuous uh, seas of liberty where there is instability. Like everyone thinks that when we talk about liberty, we're talking about utopia and everything will be great. Yeah, it's not, no, yeah. like there will be bad people doing bad things. The question is, how can we deal with them in the most narrow way possible and restrain bad actors and bad actions rather than restraining the consciences and the actions of peaceful people, right? Right now when they say, let's say in your community, short-term rentals are banned, right? Because there's that one frat house that was throwing parties. Like, how about we go after the frat house and the party and the noise and the nuisance? The core of the problem. Right, rather than just banning all these other peaceful people who who would be uh, hard. So at the end of the day, the way we educate people about liberty and the way we get them to be consistent in applying the principle to the action is I think through empathy and the golden rule. So a lot of what we find ourselves doing is getting people to imagine, using storytelling to say, look, imagine if you were in this person's shoes or imagine a scenario where you would want to do something on your property and the city ordinances wouldn't allow you. Wouldn't you consider that unjust? Hey, don't you think it's uh, horrible that child services can come in and take your children away if you're using you know, a CBD cannabis oil to relieve your back pain? Like, mm-hmm. How in the world is that okay? Oh, hey, here's these stories where that's happened isn't this wrong? So we're trying to get people to envision through storytelling that if this happened to them, put, put, put yourself in other people's shoes to whom it is happening. And if it happened to you, you wouldn't like it. So don't be party to doing it to other people when you yourself wouldn't like to do it. So it's an invitation to consider the effect on themselves, even though for a lot of these people, they've never been on the defending end, you know, of an action against the government, but you have to invite people to um, envision what that would be like so that they can begin to sympathize with, oh yeah, I wouldn't like that. Oh yeah. Okay. I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, I'll, I'll summarize that. And then I have another, I have another question regarding, 
laws and influence that people have on legislation. Yeah, uh, but I would I would say you know your the, the core the core of an individual the whole heart idea it's hard to change right especially because it's been conditioned since you know the since we're a day old right we we basically have conditioning by parents conditioning by society conditioning by schools and we become this you know person in our core our heart is driven is kind of driven by that mm. and even though i think people do understand the the principles of liberty i think you're you're right where people want this utopia they want to feel protected they want you know no killings they don't want any robberies they don't want anything that you know is is in co- is is in conflict with harmony and peace and so forth yeah and I would say the thing that connected to me is that since the beginning of time, that has always been humanity, right? Hmm. And that's an, a fact of a, a fact of life. But, uh, and maybe I'm totally wrong, but a fact of life, right? And it really comes down to when you do try to control it so that there is peace and harmony and utopia, okay, you have so many unintended consequences that actually make it worse than the tempestuous, to, to tempestuous, yeah. whatever that word tempestuous, is. Tempestuous, I think. Have you yeah. ever used that in a sentence? I've like used it in a book, <laughs> not in a verbal sentence, no. <laughs> but it's one, of those, it's one of those things where it's, that, that's the, at least the connection that, that I made. And when it came down to yeah. it, right, it's you know, the, the protection of you know, fundamental rights, you know, property rights, rights to life. Right to, so, so anyway, it's like one of those... You know, it's one of those things where if, if people can't make that connection, it's very difficult to, you know, really talk about how uh, how liberty pertains to a specific situation. Does that, does that make sense? And I think to summarize your summary, uh, Benjamin Franklin has the quote about those who trade away their liberty for security mm-hmm. will end up hi- having neither, right? Like the temptation is that we say, yeah, I'm okay not exercising these freedoms, these property rights or whatever, as long as I can now control everyone else from not doing stuff I don't like on their property. Well, we've now all lost our liberty and we truly don't have security. We have this like myth of security. Go to the airport, yeah. right? We've traded away so many liberties for the TSA and yet they allow all these things through their machines. Like anyone who wanted to repeat a 9-11 with planes could get it done. Yeah. You know, my dad specifically has this one knife that he's gone through the airport time and time and time again. They've they never, never caught, it. right? And so we've traded away all these liberties for this uh, security theater, right? And now mm, we, we have neither. We ha- don't really have security. We don't have liberty. And so I think that's the consequence. If people aren't aware of their liberties and willing to exercise them and protect them, we end up losing them. And then we have this like superficial security that might make us feel good, but isn't really actually helping. Interesting. Well, to summarize your summary of my... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so, the, so the other question I wanted to ask you was when it comes to, you know, us being able to have influence over the legislative process yeah. and influence over how uh, a, a law is either uh, passed or repealed or modified. I mean, you're going up against a Goliath in, sure. in a sense, right? Because you have this uh, this process that's existed for a long time. But in a sense, it's been you know infiltrated in a sense by special interest groups, sure. and it, and so the the layperson, the person that you know really doesn't, I mean, they understand you know the 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 form of government, they understand the you know legislative bodies, and but yet as far as how to have influence, how to make that, an impact. that mo- most people don't know that they they can make a big impact, and, so you're pr- a, and you're proof of that. I've got a secret here for well, and I'm I'm proven that I've found a way that, ch- that I could dedicate my full time and then some to doing this mm-hmm. and growing this. Most people can't do that, don't want to do that, that's not their life path. But I found a, a clever and fairly convenient way that the average citizen, citizen can make a disproportionate impact on their legislator, on the legislative process. And it all centers around the fact 
fact that like everything in life, whether you're talking about doing sales or marketing or fundraising or whatever, it all comes down to relationships. The reason why lobbyists are so successful is because they are in the relationship business. They'll go to the you know, legislators' sons like Eagle Scout Court of Honor or his basketball game, or they'll go golf together. They are all in, uh, in the business of forming relationships so that then during the legislative process, they can leverage that relationship and, and cultivate that influence in behalf of their clients. So you as an individual, we all need to make sure that we are forming relationships with those who are wielding power over us. So here's how I recommend you do it. Very easy. Um, not, not when your legislative session is, is active, right? So during kind of the off season for most states, that's like summer, fall, um, take your legislator out to lunch. Okay. And just say, Hey, I appreciate, you know, X, Y, and Z, what you did during the session. Uh, during the legislative session, I'd like to talk to you about it and, and share with you a couple ideas or concerns. Can I take you out to lunch, right? In most states, uh, there's no registration or lobbying or, you know, you're you're free to take your legislator out to lunch. Just take them out to lunch, shoot the breeze, right? Open the relationship. And then two or three months later, say, hey, thanks for meeting with me. Um, I'd like to do a cottage meeting at my house with uh, a bunch of other of your constituents. Would you come over and talk to us about some of your priorities? Mm. So now you're signaling that you uh, command respect in your community, that you can organize people and bring them together. And, and as an added little bonus of, of uh, psychological strategy that you can do, don't have this be you as an individual, have this be an organization, because then it's not I, it's we. And when you have the psychological influence of conveying this idea that I represent many people, you don't know how many people are in my citizens for a responsible economy, Mm -hmm. right? For all you know, I have 10,000 people that I've organized Mm -hmm. rather than, hi, I'm Connor. Will you go to lunch with me? With my neighbors. Yeah, it could be you and one other person, Mm -hmm. right? But the fact that you have an organization Mm -hmm. and a name suggests psychologically that there are more of you. And there are, even though you may not have their, you know, emails on your list or official members, you know that there are a ton of people out there who agree with you. And so you can kind of represent the people who you know are of a like mind. And so you take them out to lunch, you do a cottage meeting. Politicians love to, you know, talk to people and and interact with their constituents. Um, Then you can leverage that during a legislative session. That person will know who you are. They know that you command respect. They know that you have influence and you have a little bit of a relationship that you're then able to leverage to say, hey, I'd really appreciate it if you do this. You're going to have an outside influence far beyond the average constituent whose name they don't know, who they've never met, who came to that one town hall. You need to find a way to build a relationship and that small investment of time can have a disproportionately large impact when you want to make a request or say you need to vote this way or hey, will you run this bill for me? Um, You just, you need to get a relationship and for those with limited time, that's a fairly effective way to do it. Even for, I would say that's a very difficult process for most right that to go through all of those steps right to have to have interest and so that's good that you walk through those steps because yeah i mean let i remember it was hat it was i know you don't like orrin hatch but it was orrin hatch's office this was years and years ago when i was getting married and some of my wife's family was in mexico uh-huh. right and they didn't have like their visas expired or whatever. Sure. And, and so we, they wanted to come over to Arizona just to come to the wedding. And, and so, you know, I called Hatch's office and, you know, he put me in touch with this person. It well, not him, but his aides put me in touch with this person, this person. And, and they made it happen like yeah. like a three day, like temporary type of visa. Sure. 
So I look at the influence that the normal person can have, and it's it's totally there. It's just a person taking that first step is another thing, right? Right. All right, so instead of going down that path, I want to ask you a question regarding you actually doing this and forming an organization where you've dedicated, I would assume, is may not full, be full-time to you, but it's full-time to the, to the average person, is what is what's driving that? Like, wh- why do you believe so strongly in in the cause yeah. that has compelled you to go up against extreme adversity. I, I remember we, I was at Freedom Fest. I think this was the first time we met Freedom Fest a number of years ago. And you did this debate and the guy was just like <laughs> ripping you apart. And I was like, oh, I man. was like, man, and you were so calm. I forgot you were there for that. Yeah, you were so <laughs> calm. And I was, I was like, how does, how is he like able to respond without like ripping that guy's head off. Oh yeah. But so so you've gone up against you know I would I, I'm not sure of a, a, a word that's beyond adversity, but you've gone up against a, a tremendous amount of adversity to get your cause out. What is what is that driving, driving force it. behind you know behind it? It's <clears throat> uh, an interesting question. So I'm gonna try and answer it this way. Um, I think a lot of people are are have tunnel vision right? We have the, the, those narrow few things that we focus on. We've got our work, we've got our family, we've got our church, community, you know, whatever uh, engagements. And beyond that, we try and close off uh, our heart. We try and close off our, our mind uh, to the extent we can. Obviously, we're getting bombarded with news updates and push notifications. But, but for our energy, for our attention, uh, for our, our emotions, I think we wall ourselves off because it would be very easy to get over overloaded and saturated with there's so many causes to care about right and so we have to kind of wall things off and and that's understandable i think that's just a function of the world we live in right so i, I don't say that disparagingly but i think that's a symptom of it right and so people become very tunnel visioned on the things that that are kind of like the core issues that matter to them um and in that process, it becomes very easy. Think of like walking down the street and there's a homeless person sitting there. Like our, our cultural training or whatever has conditioned us to like, I'm going to pull out my phone and pretend I'm texting someone so I don't have to awkwardly, you know, look at and help this person. And I think that's kind or of... tell the kids that this, he's just going to go buy drugs with it. Right, yeah. And so it becomes very easy to kind of tune things, things out, make excuses, right? And say, oh, someone else will help or they don't really need it or whatever. Um I guess I operate a little bit differently. Um, I, rather than walling myself off, I try and pay attention and, and, um, I try and, and pay attention to the injustices. I guess I should say I have kind of this addiction for stories uh, of injustice because, uh, it's almost like this. I don't know if sadomasochistic is the right word. Like most people would read these stories and be like, Oh, I never want to read something like that again. And I almost thrive on those because for me, they're fuel. Uh, here's one a particular example. A couple of years ago, I read a book. Uh, I believe it's called getting life, uh, about Michael Morton in Texas. This was a gentleman who was convicted, uh, by more than one jury. If I'm remembering the story, right. Of killing his wife. His son was very young at the time and thus grew up believing that his dad killed his mom, which was not in fact true. Uh, This gentleman, despite being in Texas, was not actually sentenced to death. Uh, Of course, that's done quite often in in Texas, but he was sentenced to, I believe, life without parole. And, uh, and he was there for well over 20 years, uh, numerous appeals. Of course, he always maintained his innocence. 
it wasn't until uh, after year 20 or 22 that um, he was able, with the help of the Innocence Project, to obtain evidence, a bandana with some blood on it, that they were able to do DNA testing and show that it was not him. Uh, this evidence, it's called exculpatory evidence because it showed he was, uh, uh, showed he was innocent, was in possession of the government, but the prosecutor did not give that evidence to the defense as was required. So I remember, re- before I read the book, I remember seeing this story in the news because for that momentary 15 minutes of international attention was laser focused on this story in Texas. Why? Not because of the individual, not because of Michael and the injustice that he suffered. Those stories are a dime a dozen about injustices that people face at the government. The reason there was so much attention is because the prosecutor was actually held accountable, which is extremely rare. Well, even 20 years later. 20 years later, this guy had become a judge. And what was sad about this story, or rather uh, shocking, was in punishing the prosecutor, he got a five-day jail sentence. Right, So here we finally have this opportunity to hold a prosecutor accountable for intentionally destroying this guy's life, right? And he's sentenced to five days in jail, slap on the wrist. He lost his you know, law license, but big whoop. Um, I remember seeing that in the news thinking, oh my gosh, like that's a problem. Like what can be done about that? And then reading this book and, and getting emotional and just realizing that this is happening to people I know. This can happen to me. This can happen to you. I read these stories and I see them as fuel to say, like, I can do something about this. The, the first uh, activism project I ever did, I, I believe this was the first, <clears throat> was, uh, oddly enough, this also happened in Texas. This was the raid on the Yearning for Zion uh, polygamous community that was mm. down there. They're the, the FLDS uh, community. And, uh, you know, I myself am Mormon, but the main church does not practice, you know, polygamy or anything mm-hmm. anymore. So these guys are kind of like the, the awkward, like 10th cousin at the family reunion that are off doing this weird stuff. So I don't know these people. I don't have any sympathies for them or whatever, but they had this instance in which someone anonymously reported a, a tip of abuse, which was uh, incorrect. That tip led the authorities to swoop in almost Waco style armored vehicles, snipers, guns, everything. They separate all these families. They remove 400 kids. They place them into the welfare system. Like this was a horrible, horrible event. And I remember um, thinking to myself, someone needs to do something about this. I I was a blogger. I was a web developer. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but I said, hey, I'll start an online petition, right? Like that's something. And this was, you know, well over a decade ago when that thing wasn't done as often. That got a bunch of news, which led to attention from elected officials. And then I had reporters calling me. And I thought, you know, just the mere fact of like doing a little something made an impact. It made a difference. It changed the conversation. Um, and, And that made me recognize that we too often discount ourselves. We think, oh, I don't have time. I don't know how to do it. I have no idea what I'm doing. People look at me now and they think, my gosh, you're passing all these laws and writing all these. Yeah, okay, we are. But the secret here, I have no clue what I'm doing. I wake up every day looking at the things I have to do and I say, I have no idea how to get that done. And so there's no secret guidebook. You just need need sympathy, right? You need to recognize that there are other people with problems out there that, that need help. And then you just need a willingness to, to try, a willingness to do something. And I think we're so busy. People are so walled off. They just focus on themselves and 
that's all they care about. Again, I, I see that uh, as a very understandable point. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to be open um, to being willing to share some time, some mental energy, some emotion, to just support other people. Do what, Maybe it's just donating to an organization so you can kind of absolve your conscience and say, that's how I'm you know, supporting the cause. That's totally great, mm-hmm. right? That's how organizations like ours thrive right. is by finding those people who can uh, support us in that way. Um, but I think people need to be willing to invest a little bit more because without that, then we lose, you know? So what are, and thank you for that. That's an, that's an amazing, it's an amazing story. And I would say, you know, in, in a sense, most people are, are compelled by, uh, most, not everyone compelled by, uh, injustice. They see injustice done yeah. and they want to, they want to make, make a difference. Uh, and so I, I look at, I look at that and how, how do you connect that motivation to to the idea of liberty Mm. right because some people will say that you know maybe use the example of you know cannabis right which i know is a hot topic right now yeah which is well i don't want that law to pass you know because you know this this person has you know these these cannabis derived um you know elements that help them with pain or with you know with whatever Mm -hmm. but i don't want people to to you know smoke weed because if they smoke weed then they're going to do cocaine if they do cocaine then they're going to do heroin and if they do heroin now there's going to be this like meth house next door to me yeah right how do you you know how do you go from people wanting to solve that type of you know perception of injustice right um which i would you can qualify that i mean nobody wants to have those type of neighbors sure okay how do you how do you ground the principle of liberty uh or human rights right to uh, to issues like to issues like that to solve it's a, great a potential injustice. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, not perfect at this, but uh, the strategy. One of the strategies that I use is try and find the points of commonality with that individual that I can build on. So let me offer a specific example. Uh, Most of the people who use this particular argument are conservative, right? And my background is more in in conservatism, and and that's kind of where I come from. And so I'll say to them, look, I completely understand your concern, right? Like I've, I've previously felt that way. I've since shifted a little bit. I'd love the opportunity to explain why. So you mentioned that debate at Freedom Fest, right? I think you win a lot of points when you are the one who is rising above to be, to be peaceful and diplomatic rather than you're wrong and here's why, right? Yeah. So I think you start by, by showing good faith. Like I, you're not evil because you hold that point of view. I myself years ago held that point of view. Let me, let me try to the extent that's accurate, right? But in my case, it was. And I can say, let me offer an example. Um, you believe in the Second Amendment, right? Oh, yeah, yeah very important, right? Well, and, and you, you don't like all this gun control stuff that's always happening in the news and in like blue states, liberal states. Oh, no, that's awful, right? It's violating people's right to defend themselves. I completely agree. Now, let me offer an example. There are a lot of people who do horrible things with firearms, right? Uh, Homicides, suicides, robbery, armed robbery, all this kind of stuff. Um, And you would agree with me that just because some people use guns the wrong way does not mean we should violate the rights of the law-abiding person, right, to also, oh, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Okay, let me translate that to cannabis because that's my thought pattern there. I agree that people will abuse drugs. They have throughout history. It's a problem. Um, I personally think that should be a public health problem rather than a criminal justice problem, mm-hmm. but that's a conversation for another day. There I've planted a seed mm-hmm. to kind of get them thinking about that. But I can say, look, at the end of the day, just because some people are, are using it the wrong way, 
I don't think that means that we should uh, prohibit people from using it the right way, right? Under proper supervision or whatever, right? Regulations and so forth. And and I found that argument usually works. If it doesn't work in terms of like persuading them immediately, they at least understand and sympathize with it. And what I've created is a bit of internal conflict because here they're with the guns. They're holding this very deep seated, you know, uh, principle that and value. Belief, yeah. It's a core belief. Yeah. <clears throat> and there I've tried to attach that core belief to this issue that there's a bit of cognitive dissonance that you're introducing. Mm-hmm. And even if there's not resolution immediately in the conversation, you're going to send them away thinking about it quite a bit. And chances are they're going to come back and like, okay, I, I get your point. Mm-hmm. I still don't like it, but I'm not going to pose it anymore. Yep. Yeah. It's in, I, I, I've been reading, <coughs> have you ever read any, any of uh, Ryan Holiday's books? No, I haven't. Yeah. So he wrote a book called uh, Ego is the Enemy. It's really good. It's very, he kind of got off on this like stoic, this, this stoic thing a number of years ago and has written a couple mm. books on it. And, uh, you know, he, uh, amongst the other amazing quotes in this book, he, he talks about the, you know, the ego can't see two sides of an issue. You can only see one issue, right? And and I would say as most individuals go into something that they, you know, hold as a core belief, right? They're going to defend that. Sure. And ego is going to set in and there's no way in which they're going to hear the other side, especially when there's a protagonist approach to it. And I think that's where you see a lot of biting, right, in the political sphere mm. where you have two opposing views. So the way in which you've come about it by empathy and sympathy i mean that was the way which you handled that debate in uh yeah. in vegas where it was if you just came at him like guns a blazing nothing would have would have happened and people a lot of people would have gotten upset on both sides and nobody would have walked <clears throat> away with uh you know with with by learning anything which was the purpose of the debate in the first For sure place. yeah there's um th- what you just said reminded me of uh in made to stick by chip and dan heath they mm-hmm. talk about the brain psychology of influence and in there they talk about how if you try and argue a point the other individual inherently and immediately feels like they need to defend against that mm-hmm. point. If you're trying to convince someone they're wrong or that you're right, they're they're engaging the portion of their brain that is going to start trying to yeah. figure out how to win, right? Uh, the very rational center of their brain. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, on the flip side, they talk about this a bit, uh, but in other books, especially Influenced by Robert Cialdini mm-hmm. and others, they talk about the power of storytelling. And so this is on the cannabis issue. This is what we've done and, and what we're trying to do on other issues as well. Uh, the difference being that rather than engaging the rational center of their brain to to fight you, when you invite someone into a story, you're basically circumventing the rational center of the uh, of their the of their brain, and you're allowing them to participate and you lead them along. You think of the suspension of disbelief as mm-hmm. a term that we often hear. If you go into a movie, it's this like comic movie. Of course, it's all fake, right? But you're suspending your disbelief because it's a fun ride, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to go along with it. And when you use storytelling, you're allowing the person to suspend their disbelief, not, not engage mm-hmm. you, you know, in, in opposition, but like, hey, set aside everything you think. Let me share this story with you. I'm going to lead you along. And by the time we're done, you're going to feel different and you're going to get it. And so when we can use storytelling to get uh, someone to uh, participate in something rather than fight something or be persuaded about something, especially when it comes to liberty, we can we can show the Michael Morton story. Let me tell you his story. And by the time you get done telling that story, people are people like, associated with oh my gosh, mm-hmm. like that's horrible. And now when we talk about, in that example, repealing the death penalty, because how horrible would it have been if he had in fact been executed, you know, before that happened, he couldn't be made whole and, and justice restored. Mm-hmm. 
you know, oh my gosh, yeah, no, I need to reconsider my position. And that story is what impacted them to do it, not just, let me share with you the statistics about, you know, exactly. death penalty. So. And principle one, two, you know, you, right. principle against principle is very difficult Absolutely. for somebody to win. You have core values, I have core values. Yeah. Who's right? And Who's right? Right. Exactly. That's yeah. interesting. Well, let's get, I want to get, you know, a few more questions yeah. in as far as uh, liberty, the, the principle <laughs> of liberty is concerned. Uh, because I would say, especially if you name your company after, you know, yeah, you you understand that 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 fundamental place of that principle, not only in you know the the creation or foundation of our country, right, but also in the lives of of people. So, would you mind maybe talking about the significance that that principle had in relation to you know the formation of our society, mm. right, and how we've maybe deviated to to an extent. Uh, and then the importance of individuals, and I'll repeat this question, but rep- uh, the importance of individuals to understand that principle uh, for you know internally, right, in order to have mm. a more meaningful, fulfilling life. Yeah, uh, good question. So, okay, so the American dream, as we all call it, wouldn't be uh, wouldn't exist were it not for the implementation of a set of core beliefs and principles in our system of government, right? Uh, From which we have deviated, but I'll I'll get there to your second question in a moment. Um, This was this classical liberal belief about the individual as the center of the political universe rather than uh, the state. And uh, or the family, not just the individual, right? And so here you you elevate the individual and you say, we need to empower that individual by stepping out of his way. Uh, Thomas Jefferson talked about the definition of liberty being, um, you know, basically don't harm other people uh, as long as they're not harming anybody else, right? Like you're, uh, my liberty begins at the, the point of my nose. You can do whatever you want as long as you're not, you know, going to punch me or do anything. Uh, th- th- this is the whole concept of the formation of the American government was people free to act as, as uh, to the extent that they could and preferred to without other people impeding on their activity. Now, that wasn't perfect. There were people who disagreed. A lot of people think, oh, the founding fathers were unanimous. and Like, no, there okay. were political fights and everything. Mm-hmm. But writ large, that the context and the outcome of the American experiment uh, was kind of this very wild, wild west notion of just uh, enterprise and pursuit um, and fulfillment and being able to uh, go about and achieve your dreams. A lot of that, I think, was born of just having fresh territory. Uh, We weren't steeped in this old European monarchical uh, framework like we could escape that have this open raw land where we could start fresh it was mm-hmm. an opportunity to start over and I think a lot of it was born because of that if we had suddenly this new island that formed and a bunch of people fled there we could probably you know start something great too from the outset because of the the rawness and newness so I think a lot of it was just that it was a new opportunity of course since then we've drifted quite away from that uh, especially with the progressive era um, especially Woodrow Wilson, the beginning of the, uh, the 1900s, you definitely had this shift with FDR and, and others towards uh, more entitlement. You had the rise of these massive corporations that were perceived to be the enemy. They were positioned as the enemy. So the government could come in and say, no, we need to, to tear these guys down and break them apart and protect the little guy and set up these labor unions and be able to, um, to, to not let these companies get uh, so large. And so you had the elevation of the individual, not through the merits of their own labor, which was the uh, early American way, but the elevation of individual through legislation that gave special rights and protected that individual. Mm -hmm. 
the 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 outcome of that is that that individual rather than just trying their hand and seeing what they could do they could use the law as a weapon against their employer they could use the law to their advantage to say you owe me money neighbor right you have to pay for my medical bills or my retirement and so suddenly the individual was artificially elevated um right rather than elevated Hmm. on their own merit so as this shift towards this entitlement uh, mentality Um, And so rather than like this free enterprise opportunity where American dream, you build it, you know, sky's the limit, whatever you think you can achieve, you can go achieve. Now it's this like, well, yeah, that's like the 1%, right? For the rest of us, the government is going to step in and do everything for you. I remember in particular during uh, one of Barack Obama's campaigns, their campaign had this fictional uh, Julia, they called her. It was this little cartoon um, educational website that they set up where you could watch Julia throughout her whole life. Oh, yeah, that's you right. remember this? So, yeah. like, here's Julia when she's born, here's Good Julia markers. when she's six. And at every phase of Julia's life, the campaign was showing how great government is because it's helping Julia succeed. Hey, when she's born, her mother had planned parenthood to manage things for her and oh, yes. supported by the government and the maternal. Um, uh, healthcare support and and then she's born and then there's uh, daycare subsidies and there's you know public education and there's chip and there's all these like government things so throughout Julie's entire life as she matured it would show all the government benefits I think that was a profound and stark um, uh, display of how far we've deviated. It's not, you know, uh, is the government going to step out of its way to maximize your opportunity for happiness and, and flourishing and everything else? It's what can the government do for you? And the problem, of course, is there is no government. The government is us. And it's what am I going to force my neighbors through the power of law to do on my behalf rather than me doing it? So I think that illustrates the the shift. And you see it today in uh, you know, the, the byproduct of our public education institutions, the amount of debt uh, that is being accumulated, the sense of uh, entitlement that people think, the way that people are voting, um, the issues that they're voting for, there very much is this diminishing notion of freedom and, hey, step out of my way, let me succeed. It's who's going to be my safety net? Who's going to subsidize me? What goodies am I going to get? Um, and it's very much this take advantage of whatever you can in the system because this system has so many opportunities. You've created perverse incentives. Mm-hmm. You can't fault people for seeing all these opportunities for free money yeah. or free care and not tank, taking excuse me not taking advantage of them. It, it makes sense economically speaking. The tragedy, of course, is that the net aggregate effect of that is this overall societal reduction in our aggregate uh, achievement, happiness, productivity. Um, but individuals have now been habitually trained through the public education system and media and everything else to not see that as a problem. They see it as a they see it as a feature. They mm-hmm. see it as a benefit um, rather than a bug, you know, in the system. And so that that shows how much we've deviated. Remind me of your third question. You asked something else. Can at I the, ask the third the one? End. Yeah, I, and well, you I said asked, you were going to repeat it too. Yeah, no, I did. <laughs> I I think yeah, we'll have to edit this part. I'm trying to think of. It was, <clears throat> what would people benefit from understanding the principle of liberty? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we can talk about this in the aggregate, about what it's done to society before and after. I think the more interesting and important thing is what can it do for you and I? Mm-hmm. Uh, the greatest thing that I've seen is when people make that, uh, that, that educational uh, discovery about these principles, 
which is unfortunate, first of all, that they have to discover them because they're really not taught in public schools. This stuff is not emphasized. Mm -hmm. You have to just find them on your own through trusted mentors and books and resources, uh, unfortunately. Um, but when you discover those principles and apply them, th these aren't just political principles. That's what's so great about them. These are, I think they're uh, social principles, economic principles that have application to law to say, hey, the more you step out of my way, the more you know achievement and opportunity I have. But really at the end of the day, it's, it's I am empowered more by serving other people. The, the best way I've seen a definition of entrepreneurship is that you're a servant. Mm -hmm. You're identifying a problem that somebody else has and you're finding a way that uh, you can fulfill that mm -hmm. right on their behalf. You're serving them in the process. There's an exchange of value and they're making it worth your time, mm -hmm. of course. And frankly, it's cheaper for them to pay you than for them to have to figure it out on their own mm -hmm. and do everything. And so I think um, that's a fundamental principle that when you learn about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when you learn about property rights, when you learn about free markets, when you learn about a lot of these ideas, you can go the public policy route and think, therefore, the law must say X, Y, and Z. But you can also think about, hey, we're going to set up a neighborhood co-op or I'm going to start a business or I'm going to create a consulting firm or whatever. How can I apply these principles that are going to um, allow me to serve my clients, to serve other people? Um, and we're going to basically create our own mini society mm -hmm. of individuals interacting based on these principles. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I know some people in my life who were on the dole, right? They were uh, on a lot of welfare and, and stuck in a rut and having a lot of problems. And seeing those individuals, when they can dig themselves out or when they get a handout and they're able to provide for themselves when they're able to provide for others, right? Rather than being a drain on the system, they can be uh, a contributor to the system and help other people. When you look at an individual who has gone from one end of the spectrum to another, mm -hmm. when they've gone from a dependent to a provider, um, to a T, you see a person who is way more happy than they were, right? But what's the necessary variable to get from point A to point B? You tell me. It's, it's the conflict that exists in between. Mm. And if you have that adversity and it is essentially curbed for you, you don't learn a lesson. You stay in the same rut. That's a good point. So like even if you teach them how to fish, as it were, mm -hmm. like they can just move on, stay in their same for rut. Because sure. yeah. you have competing, I think you have competing like natural, natural forces, right? You have this sense of, um, I want to be safe right? You're compelled to, to be safe and live in a safe environment, mm -hmm. right? And, and so therefore you look for, you look for solutions, but the competing variable, right, is the ability for you to actually solve the problem as opposed to somebody else. Mm. And, and that is, it's always, it's always interesting to me, but I would say that there are, there are always these conflicting human uh, desires, right? And, uh, and, and in the end, what does it come down to? I think that the fundamental, understand the fundamental rights, you realize what we talked about in the beginning, which is there's no such thing as a utopia, yeah. right? There's always going to be conflict, but instead of using the narrative of, well, if we didn't have government, then our roads and, you know, our roads and we wouldn't have schools and we wouldn't have roads. It's, it's kind of like, that's the narrative, but mm -hmm. nobody really has the conversation as you articulated, right? To really understand that if the government wasn't doing that, it's not that we wouldn't have roads. It's that roads would be built differently. Schools would operate differently, mm -hmm. but we'd never really give it that, you know, it's, it's gone so far where we've kind of delegated responsibility, right? To, to the state to solve our problems. And I understand why, man. I mean, you, you go back to, you know, the, the pilgrims, right? They came to the, to, you know, the U.S. Like they, you know, they wanted freedom. They wanted land. They wanted opportunity. Mm -hmm. But the first colonies, they like, you know, almost destroyed themselves because they wanted to use this like, so, you know, socialistic type of uh, right. framework. 
So it's one of those things where in, in the conflict, you learn and you learn more and you learn more, right? But the only learning takes place is if you feel that, that pain and failure and then get to experience it. And that failure is a good teacher, For right? For sure. It's I awesome. think I think this ties into what we said earlier, where if you are in these old European monarchical systems, we may not have been able to implement these same core values and principles than having this new territory um, because there's so much baggage there, right? I think it was part of the new discovery and new opportunities to start fresh and say, okay, what are we going to do? now how what are we going to do to kind of change the culture and change the process that allowed for those opportunities right so you think of like starting a new business it's great to have kind of a the drawing board to say how are we going to set things up what's the culture going to be like what's the structure and the process going to be like whereas if you inherit like another company that's failing and has all this culture and baggage and stuff it's very hard to correct that it's mm-hmm. very hard to shift away from that for sure and so these principles have power but i think the greatest opportunity we have is at the beginning to try and set things in motion consistent with these principles rather than trying to always play catch up and correct which I think can still be done it's just Mm -hmm. a lot more work so how do you see because we we could go off on I was going to bring up like Hamilton I don't know if you've gotten into that my daughter got Mm -hmm. into the whole Hamilton thing and you know anyway there's lots of evidence there of everything we've been talking about uh, not in a good way Uh, but looking at you know I would say the the main thing we've been uh, discussing I totally lost my train of thought where was I going uh I was going... Hamilton. <clears throat> <clears throat> what were you talking about? Monarchical, new stuff, apply principles. Um, no, it's more of just like the found... I wanted to kind of get across like the foundational understanding of those rights, you know, bring about bring about human human genius. All right, I'll just... I'll, I'll start there. All right. So, the, I mean, basically, if you look at, you know, the, the system of tyranny, right, that I would say... Our, our founders and what we fought a revolutionary war over okay you you had that system and it was because you, we gave responsibilities to a state to a monarch you know a king uh and to, to take care of us but they're all they're unintended consequences of that right mm-hmm. and you can bring that to the you know the nth degree of of what tyrants have done over over history looking at individuals nobody wants that end right but yet they're not necessarily connecting the dots as far as what I've seen. Cause I, I was in the same boat. They're not connecting the dots between, you know, our country, what it was founded on and how giving up our liberties, uh, for safety, mm-hmm. right. Is essentially bringing us closer to tyranny instead of away from it. So mm-hmm. what would you say are, are maybe some of the signs that you see? Cause nobody wants that. And I think we're experiencing it. Right. I think with the social security dilemma, I think with our government debt taxes, uh, going up and being at such high levels, not just on a federal level, but you know, state and local levels as well. You have people that are getting upset and frustrated, and they're experiencing what happens when you delegate responsibility. What what signs do you see uh, that there's there's shifting going on? I would say first in like the hearts and minds of people, but then you know maybe some ap- uh, you know, actual things that are happening, technologies, businesses, initiatives, right? That yeah. are signs that people are recognizing. Wow, these are these are my rights. I can I can use you know what still exists of our of our country's framework to uh, provide solutions, to start businesses, to, to do well. Yeah, so uh, let me start this way. When the whole Facebook Cambridge Analytica thing blew up, there was widespread fury over how much of our data Facebook has. 
despite the fact that we voluntarily give this information to Facebook, we voluntarily upload it. Did you see those sessions? Yeah, it was, it was horrible, right? But, uh, but then you contrast that against the NSA, right? Where we are involuntarily having our information collected. Where was the fury? Where was the outcry, right? To me, it's always hypocritical to see kind of this misplaced fury and rage and even attention given to issues where, like, guys, where were you, you know, uh, a decade ago when these NSA facilities were being built and all these revelations were happening? Uh, or where are you now? Why aren't you, I mean, okay, fine, you were asleep or not paying attention. Like, why aren't you upset about it right now? Um, that That's, I think, one of the challenges because part of the answer to your question, uh, as you were asking it of me, I was thinking along the lines of disruption, okay? I, I think that technological disruption, you look at like the Ubers and Lyfts versus the taxis or the Airbnbs versus the hotels, right? You ha- we have all these apps where uh, we are getting accustomed to disrupting large, outdated, antiquated, slow, inefficient institutions. There's almost like a cultural expectation that there's an app for that, right? There's a better way to do something mm-hmm. like that that is individualized, that I can transact directly with the individual, mm-hmm. peer-to-peer economy. You look at things like Bitcoin and stuff now, right? Oh, there's yep. there's just these broader opportunities for direct interaction to cut out the middleman. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity there in this cultural zeitgeist that we're in to leverage that expectation of disruption and apply it to the government, where we can get people to recognize these principles of liberty that we're talking about and say that is what liberty can allow for, is that individuals can be free to interact with one another just like you're getting used to doing here, how ridiculous is it when the government steps in and forces you to subsidize the taxi industry? Do you like that? Well, no, right? Do you love your Uber? Well, yeah. And so you can use what people are getting accustomed to to mm-hmm. say that is the ideal. You don't use the same language and the same terms. Use examples. Yeah, use examples, right? Um, to show that they're already practicing this and they are already beneficiaries of it. The silliest thing was watching the whole uh, protests on Wall Street years ago, mm-hmm. right? And all these guys are using iPhones to coordinate their protests against the 1% mm-hmm. that has made the iPhones possible, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're using the tools of capitalism to argue against capitalism. But even Facebook. I mean, if you if you look at that hearing, it was it was a, a mockery. I mean, I think Congress just made themselves look, look like just... I would, you know, ignorant buffoons, right? As far, mm. as far as the questions. And I think most people could detect that. Yeah. And, and here you have, you know, NSA, which was, NSA is there to protect us. That's the feeling. Then you have Facebook. They're there to make money, mm-hmm. right? And those kind of conflicting things, I think, is what really disrupted things. And I would say it disrupted Congress more than it did people. Yeah. Right? But I would say that the congressional hearing was, you know, we need a law for this. We need a law for this. You need to change this. Would you do... Th- it's kind of like what is solving the problem of connecting humanity, right? They're trying to now legislate it because they think that a utopia exists. That's a perfect example, right? Well, and earlier you mentioned the unintended consequences. It's the same thing. It's like, hey, we're going to now pass these regulations. Well, what's the unintended consequence Facebook of goes out of business. Right. And now nobody has those connectivity pieces. Right. Or someone else steps in who's willing to accommodate and able to accommodate all the regulation that's a much, you know, uh, poorer... Uh, system that nobody wants to use or it's a more nefarious one that is backdooring everything for the government or whatever, but right? But even like the, now you're putting, again, not to, to 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 beat a dead horse with this point, but you have congressmen who don't understand mm-hmm. anything about Facebook and what it does, its business model, but yet they're the ones that are making laws, you know, to 
you know, to protect people against it. It's just, anyway, it's a very kind of like, you know, Atlas shruggish type yeah. of, you know, society that there's, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, evidence that it's happening in a lot of different industries and capacities. And so it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting, but again, and it, it, we've always been, this humanity has always fought this, this yeah. cycle over and over and over. I'm, again. I'm glad you said that because one of the points I, I failed to bring up earlier that I've been thinking of is, uh, one of the challenges that we have, um, is, is the ignorance challenge, right? Because we know that those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. So many of the problems that we face now that pertain to liberty, political, economic, or whatever, um, have already been played out before. We, we know how these things work. And even though we can say unintended consequences, that they are consequences. And, and sure, they're unintended, but we've seen the same consequences play out time and time again. Mm. Therefore, from kind of this more Austrian economic uh, liberty-based view, we can reliably, fairly reliably predict the outcome. That's we don't know when, right? Mm-hmm. It could be two years, 20 years, whatever. But, <clears throat> you know, history is cyclical. And a lot of these same problems we've had before. And so from a liberty standpoint, it's almost more compassionate. And what I mean by that is we're trying to say um, we know what happens if we set up society this way. Like we can't perpetuate this and maintain this long term. And so how about we try and avoid being like Rome and we try and avoid being like these societies that have gone down this path. We can say, let's set it up like the early American experiment that allowed for the maximum prosperity and flourishing the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to that as the greatest predictor of future success and try and remain as faithful and consistent to that as possible. And it's more compassionate because you're trying to spare people from the, the inevitable collapse and heartache and frustration and everything else that's going to ensue when you know a bubble bursts or a bank run happens or a currency hyperinflates or whatever yeah Yeah. and so uh you know a lot of people are just trying to live in the moment and enjoy the the uh the excess and the the bubble right the benefits of the bubble um and those of us who are perceived i think sometimes to be pessimistic by always being so critical about Mm -hmm. what's happening we're not saying don't enjoy life. We're just saying we're concerned about the long-term outcomes. Yeah. And so I always try and position liberty as being a compassionate thing. You mentioned Ron Paul at the beginning. Uh, he was nicknamed Dr. No, right? Because in Congress, he was always saying no to this, no to that. And uh, what I liked is during one of his presidential campaigns, he flipped it. And I think this was genius. It's not that you're saying no to X, Y, and Z. You're saying yes to the alternatives, right? It needs to be framed in a positive Absolutely. light. If framed, all we yeah. are is, is critical all of the time, we're not going to endear other people to us. We're not going to persuade people. We're going to look like a Debbie Downer and like we don't have solutions for anything. We just, oh, I don't like that. Get off my lawn, right? Whereas if we say, look, there's a better way and here's a different idea and here's a, something I could support and, and hey, I'd be willing to do this with you, right? Like I've told people during, I th- what was it? The whole like Chick-fil-A LGBT protests or whatever Mm -hmm. I said look if you guys would avoid using government um, and just go protest instead I might go there with you I might object to some of the stuff let's (laughs) use the market and let's you know protest uh, the right way Um, we have to be willing to say yes to the right things and not just no to the wrong things Mm -hmm. and I think that's how we sell liberty I think that's how we bring other people to our cause because we're in the business of trying to help people learn about these principles we need to give sell them on the vision we need to sell them on how these things could actually look if implemented we need to show them a path forward rather than saying oh the path you're on is wrong or that path is bad we need to show them the other uh, way the other way yeah all right well we could probably keep going for a couple more hours but this has been uh intellectually stimulating yeah i always love chatting with you well i love the you know you're 
you you have a, a business is based on just a I would say a word that is you know become cliche right and and the idea of liberty the idea of freedom it is it's something that you know we use you know in our vernacular but yet the fundamental principle uh, is is not very well understood by yeah. people. And I think if there was focus there, then people would start to look at, you know, the circumstances of life and uh, potentially have different opinions and make more informed, uh, more informed decisions. Yeah. Well, how can, uh, how can people follow you? I mean, you've been on here before, uh, you know, we've promoted, you know, you do an amazing job. You practice what you preach on a political level, but you also have your books that you tell mm. the story of simple foundational principles yeah. that are, are, are written for children. So how can people get a hold of you? How can they learn more about yeah, you? Yeah, so if you want to learn more about our work, um, as I said, there are organizations like ours in other states. Uh, so that's libertasutah.org. Um, if you're curious to find the organization like ours in your state, you can go to spn.org. That stands for State Policy Network. And then you can look on a map and say, show me the organization in my state. Maybe you want to work with them, support them, you know, reach out to them or whatever. Cool. Um, and then the books are tuttletwins.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use the coupon 40, the word F-O-R-T-Y, to get 40% off, which is a deal we're doing right now. These are for kids age about 5 to 11. The sneaky thing here is we're educating a ton of adults along the way, too, <laughs> who are never going to pick up these, like, big big, thick economic treatises, but hey, it's a kid's book. We can read it together. And we get parents all the time being like, oh my gosh, I learned more than that than, you know, from these books than in college. Like it mm-hmm. makes sense. Makes me think that all of our college textbooks should have like illustrations and for sure, you know, it would make digesting a lot of that information a lot better, but that's mm-hmm. uh, tuttletwins.com and, and we're having a ton of fun educating a whole lot of people. I bet. And also on the show notes, we'll have everything. If you weren't able to write any of that down, go to our show notes, thewellstandard.com. And we'll have all of those links uh, so you guys can uh, can follow and learn from Connor. All right, everyone. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Connor. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.